zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special vintage video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the vintage video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Louis Letizia has asked us to review Airport 77. Released March 11th, 1977, it was written by Michael Sheff and David Spector, based on a story by H.A.L. Craig and Charles Kuhnstel. From a novel by Arthur Haley, directed by Jerry Jameson, and released by Universal Pictures. In 1968, Arthur Haley's novel Airport was published and remained on the New York bestsellers list despite middling reviews from critics. The film found a much wider audience upon its adaptation to film by writer-director George Seaton. It starred a cavalcade of A-listers, Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin, Gene Seberg, Jacqueline Bissett, and George Kennedy and scored $100 million in the box office on its way to 10 Academy Award nominations. Really? 10. I didn't watch that one. Like, yeah. What's the premise of that one? It's mainly about the operations of the airport, which really? is why it's called Airport. There's an airplane stalled out on one of the runways, blocking part of a runway, because okay. he made too tight a turn and he drove into the grass, and so it got stuck in the dirt. And that runway becomes very important over the course of the film because there's a plane that was damaged by an explosion and they're trying to land and they got to get this other plane out of the way. Okay, so it's much less of sort of the uh, disaster film that this one is. Right. I mean, it's still a disaster and it is part of the birth of the disaster film genre. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, obviously there were disaster films before the 70s, but uh, it became a craze here in the 70s. And But this one is... Airport 1970 is really slow. Uh, it's mostly about relationships between characters at the airport, and the stuff with the bomb and the, the plane blocking the runway is kind of uh, happening in the background, and it's not as important as the rest of the story. Mm. Um, it's just, it's it was an interesting choice, I would say. I think those kinds of movies are, and all of these kinds of movies are kind of hard when you have such an enormous cast. Right. The success of Airport and later the Poseidon Adventure together kicked off the disaster film craze of the 1970s, led by the four-film Airport franchise and the filmography of producer Irwin Allen, who we've discussed ad nauseum on the show. A second Airport film was conceived, Airport 1975. The first one centers on a depressed bomber boarding a transatlantic flight. The second film involves a head-on mid-air collision that takes out all the pilots and leaves a shaken flight attendant in charge of landing the plane. While less wait, successful, wait, wait, wait. What? a tiny single-engine plane crashes into the front window of the oh, passenger plane. I, I'm imagining two giant planes no. colliding yeah. midair. Two 747s <laughs> crashed head-to-head, -head and a flight attendant a flight has to attendant land the exploded able... plane. Yeah. Right. How does that work? Yeah. Good point. <laughs> Well, Thank you a, for stopping me. Yeah, it's just she's just in a seat with the wheel. And it's like, yeah. well, <laughs> this is something squeaking, like rolling the back out. Yeah, like it's like still a able to fly this cartoon plane, plane remnants. <laughs> Wait, and the when you say the depressed bomber, like <laughs> he he was going to kill himself for insurance money to provide for his family. Right. 
and when you say but you wouldn't say a suicidal bomber a suicide bomber i was just trying to simplify that he wasn't like a religious suicide bomber that was like i'm gonna take down this plane or like a, a terrorist man who he's just a depressed guy who who wants to die and wants it to look like an aviation accident so that his family can get insurance money got it but i didn't want to have to spell out the whole plot of the film it's also the plot of airplane two because obviously airplane two is making fun of this sequel to airport right. while less successful the second film paid for itself and warranted the green lighting of a third film airport 77 combines the vehicles of the airport franchise with the basic plot of the successful Poseidon Adventure franchise. This film was followed by a fourth, the Concorde, Airport 79, about the famous Concorde supersonic airliner that traveled at an average cruising speed of just over Mach 2, twice the speed of sound. So crazy. In that film, a witness with important evidence is on the plane, so terrorists are doing their best to shoot it out of the sky. But weirdly, it's the only film in the airport series with a connection. So after being shot at all day, they land and have dinner in a city and then fly out again the next morning. And get shot at again? Yeah. <laughs> Do they really? Yes. <laughs> George Kennedy is promoted to captain duty for the fourth and final film. Uh, is he in all of them? He's in all four. Hmm. Even though they kept the first film's title, little, if any, of the second through fourth films involved the operations of the actual airports, which is the main focus of the first film. I, I thought it was a little weird that I'm like, why is this called airport? Yeah. It's just airplane. Yeah, well, it's funny, too, because I read some of the reviews of the book, and there were people that were like, oh, yeah, this is a really exciting movie about an airport. Aren't you just thrilled at the idea of listening to an airport? I can't wait for his next book, Grocery Store <laughs> or Parking Lot. It's just like harsh, dude. I, I, but I do really want to see the sequels to Grocery Store where yeah. it's really There's just no like, grocery it's store like a it? fast, you know, it's like Fast Five or yeah. something yeah. like that, but it's called Grocery <laughs> Store 2. <laughs> grocery Store 79. <laughs> On a budget of $6 million, Airport 77 managed to bring in $91 million in the box office and still scored a pair of Academy Award nominations for Best Art Direction for George C. Webb and Best Costumes for Edith Head. George C. Webb's nomination for set design was well-deserved after the construction of a three-story, 4,000-square-foot airline interior set mounted on gimbals to allow the entire stage to be tilted back and forth. It was also obviously connected to a massive water tank for the flooding scenes, and beyond that, a 70-foot section of the plane's exterior was also built and submerged in a Florida lake for the outdoor set pieces. All told, the set design budget amounted to a quarter of the film's budget, $1.5 and I have to assume the rest went to renting military boats and paying for the bigger names in the cast, because what else would you spend money on outside of this plane? Yeah. But but honestly, money well spent, Right, guys. for sure. You just put it in the right spot. Yeah. It felt like a real plane. It, it really, really did. It really did. This was also the 35th and final Oscar nomination for legendary costumer Edith Head. Did you say 35th? 35th. Wow. wow. Um, And she had served the same role of costume designer on the two previous airport films, but had the good sense to quit after this one. Of the four airport films, this one is the only film not to feature a plane that was destroyed in an accident later. The 707 used in the first film crashed in Brazil in 1989. The Beechcraft Baron, which collides with the plane in the second film, actually collided with another plane, also in 1989. The Concorde, used for the exterior shots in the fourth film, crashed in 2000, killing all 107 people on board and four people on the ground. Yikes. It was such a famous wreck that the Concords were consequently grounded permanently, and the Concorde program was scrapped. Wait, is that the reason? Yes. 
the crash? Yeah. I thought they were grounded because of the insane noise violations. That well, they- that was a problem too, but they had they had had other accidents. So they were just like, this doesn't I make sense. I feel like that's the price you pay for Yeah, I guess. I guess, yeah. <laughs> if you want to be fancy. They bought their tickets. They knew what they were getting into. I say, let them crash. <laughs> Less than a month after this film's release, two 747s collided in fog at Tenerife Airport in the Canary Islands, resulting in the highest death toll of any aviation accident to date. Note I say accident, because 9-11 was not an accident. They crashed those planes on purpose. Ah, uh, well, no, that makes sense. But that, and it makes sense that two of the largest two planes full 747s. that have ever existed yeah. crashing into each other would be the largest accident to date. For the film's television premiere on NBC in September of 1978, the broadcast was split into a two-part miniseries, aired on the 24th and 25th. The film is less than two hours long as is, so an additional 70 minutes was added to the runtime, including new footage shot special with actress Lee Grant to expand her storyline. The more than three-hour NBC cut has yet to be released on any home video format. Oh, man. I would actually like to see that, though, because... I, I I like this movie, and some of the things that I actually wish they developed was a little bit more of the character stories sure. in the plane. Yeah. You know, in a similar way to you see in other disaster movies, like something like Titanic or yeah. Poseidon Adventure, where you're, you're really getting a little taste of their lives. Yeah. Well, I think most of the 70 minutes was actually outtakes and stuff that had been edited out of the film, mm. but then they brought in Lee Grant to shoot some extra footage. And I'm assuming that's why the home video version doesn't exist because they probably shot it with television cameras and it looks like it looks trash garbage, unless you're watching yeah. it on NBC in 1970s. <laughs> After the film's release, Universal Studios Theme Park in California added an attraction called the Airport 77 Screen Test Theater, where volunteers were invited to stand on a mock set and read lines from the script that were then edited into the film and played back to give the impression that guests were interacting with the cast of the film. They also gave volunteers the option to purchase their screen test on videotape or 8mm film. Really? Isn't that awesome? I wish they had something like that now. That, yeah. That is kind of awesome, I but especially for the time, because presumably that was... Uh, either right after this film in the late 70s or early 80s and yeah. so to turn around digital video copies of- well here, what i think they must have done is they must have been shooting with two cameras and they would have one that would be recording to a tape that they would give you and they would have an eight millimeter camera that they would probably take your information and mail to you because they couldn't process an eight well, millimeter that's what film I'm saying. i don't i don't know how they would instantly have edited those together not yeah. not at the, at the very least to present to you yeah. um because i could see them maybe oh, i mean maybe they would do it like they would do a live performance at the time but yeah. then to and give just you a on... copy of what they just created instantly just seems like it's impressive uh, yeah because the razzies did not exist when the airport series were in theaters all three airport sequels were retroactively inducted into the razzie awards hall of shame in 1983 ironic because the only installment not inducted, the first film, is undoubtedly the worst of the bunch. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really slow. And the second one's not great either, and it really fumbles the ending. But the first one was so boring for like half of them. Well, like the bomb doesn't go off until literally an hour into the movie. People give too much credit for stuff for being first. Yeah. Like 10 Oscar nominations. <laughs> we start this film with a helicopter moving along Palm Beach toward an extravagant mansion. This building is the Vizcaya Museum and Gardens on Biscayne Bay in what is now Coconut Grove in Miami, Florida. It was built by former resident James Deering, but after his death, 
The family could not keep up with its maintenance, and it now belongs to Miami-Dade County. Jimmy Stewart, as Mr. Stevens, is in the cockpit. When it touches down in the mansion's garden, Mr. Stevens is approached by a crowd of reporters. He has converted this mansion into an art museum. He tells them how he started his collection with stamps, which he traded for bicycles and then old cars, and finally fine art, starting with a beautiful Renoir he saw. It's like that paperclip story. Yeah, where he trades it all the way up to a human head. What? That was from Hell Knight. Most of his guests for tonight's grand opening are flying in on a brand new plane that he has recently unveiled. We get a title card as a plane flies low over Washington, D.C. It comes in for a landing at Dulles International Airport, which is the same airport where the plane started in the previous airport, 1975, and also the same airport I flew into for my 8th grade Washington, D.C. field trip where I was kicked out of the Supreme Courthouse. I, for most of my life, always thought people just said Dallas. Really weird. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, the, the Dallas in Washington is yeah. pronounced Yeah, but weird. I also didn't understand that Dulles Airport, which I had heard of, was in Washington, D.C. Yeah. I was like, yeah. why does everybody call the Dallas Airport Dulles Airport? Because it's so fucking boring. <laughs> <laughs> More like Dulles Airport. <laughs> it's also the setting of Die Hard 2. Oh, yeah, that's right. As the plane touches down, we see Jack Lemmon as Captain Don Gallagher at the controls. The credits display a huge and impressive list of A-list and B-list actors, as is the tradition of this franchise. Of course, among them is George Kennedy, who serves as the through line for the entire franchise. Though the plane says Stevens Corporation on the side, the distinctive red, white, and blue stripes would indicate that this is an American Airlines plane, as would the AA logo at the top of the stair car. <laughs> uh, also, yeah, not, I mean, obviously just, not just the striping, because I, I don't think that they do this anymore, but they used to leave the bare metal. Yes. Um, I think they fully paint their planes now. Yeah, that definitely was the case, but though. But they, they, they stopped painting them in order to save money on yeah. fuel, which is fascinating that that the actual weight of the paint is mm -hmm. worth skipping in order to save on fuel costs. That's the same with the, the shuttles, right? Yeah, the space shuttle, yes. With the, the big orange rocket, they used to paint that. Yeah. Um, but then they realized, well, hold on, we could carry an extra, like, 400 pounds if Just we Just have them be it. orange. That's fine. <laughs> it's going to go into the water anyway. Yeah. Captain Gallagher is met at the bottom of the stair car by Darren McGavin as his friend Stan Buchek. Gallagher was here to do a preliminary check of the plane and everything seems to meet his standards. We cut inside Dal We cut inside Dulles Airport as a pilot <laughs> Please leave that mistake in here. <laughs> we cut inside Dulles Airport as a pilot walks up to a magazine rack at a shop accompanied by ominous music. He sets down a case and another man sees him and trades cases. The pilot continues through security where his badge is apparently either real or convincing enough. I, I didn't understand this because generally you would want to... Trade the things after the security. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like the whole concept is that you can't get it through security. Yeah. <laughs> he steps into a locker room and starts to open the case. Outside in an airplane hangar, fancy paintings are being wrapped up and loaded into the plane. I wonder which is worth more, the cargo or the plane. Well, this point's a toss-up. Also in the queue to be loaded into the plane is a fancy old car, specifically a 1909 De Dion Bouton, and a giant crate of wine. Lafitte Ross Chill 45. I didn't know there's any of that stuff left. After tonight, there won't be, Captain. <laughs> Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned a Lafitte's Rothschild? What? No. No, I don't. The Duke ordered a glass of it in Under the Rainbow, and the hotel manager was so uncultured he didn't even know it was wine. Alberto, we should have some uh, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. Okay, and uh, will you be having wine with that, sir? I bet it's fine. Back in the bathroom, the ominous pilot affixes a mirror to the wall 
and stuffs his mouth with foam to change the shape of his jawline. Next, he applies a fake mustache to his upper lip because putting it on his lower lip would be weird. <laughs> <laughs> then he tugs on a shitty wig, but in the following shot as he washes his hands, it's been replaced with either a very expensive wig or the actor's natural hair styled to resemble the disguise. It was so distracting, the difference between w- the disguise he put on and the cut here to how the actor is going yeah. to look that I was certain it wasn't the same actor. Yeah, because the wig <laughs> literally looks like a Halloween store wig. Like, it's all matted down on one side. It looks like shitty plastic. Did he need to change the shape of his jawline? I don't know. He's just going full Brando with it. And if you're going to disguise yourself as a maintenance worker, why not get, like, maintenance worker credentials versus pilot credentials? Because he's posing as so many different jobs. Just be the maintenance worker until you get on the plane. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Gallagher ducks into another office to meet with his long-term girlfriend, Eve Clayton, played by Brenda Vaccaro. Gallagher proposes to her just as she mentions a job offer that she's interested in in another city. He suggests that he could find work flying there, but they'd still barely see each other. She seems happy with their occasional fling system, but Gallagher wants a wife and kids. They leave to grab lunch together, and we see the disguised pilot mixed in with the crew of throwers loading the plane. There's throwers? M- yeah. Yeah. Oh. There's more J&B whiskey in the hold, keeping with our recent pattern. The fake pilot-slash-thrower touches base with another thrower, and they move deeper into the plane together to discuss some sort of nefarious plot. You know, you learn something new every day. (laughs) They climb up into a crawl space where they can access pipes to the passenger areas and install a cartridge of CR-7, which is labeled for military use only. CR gas is an incapacitating agent, but its side effects are much more painful than we'll see in the film where it's treated like a simple knockout gas. Real CR gas causes extreme skin irritation and, in enough doses, cancer, and its effects are long-term. Well, we don't, we don't know that none of these people got cancer. Right, that's true. <laughs> and by effects long-term, you mean the, the passing out or the... Everything that it does, they would be hospitalized for weeks. Ah. The plane is moved out onto the tarmac and a red carpet is laid out. Passengers arrive one at a time and their names are checked off the list. First into the plane are Lisa and her son Benji. Lisa is the daughter of Mr. Stevens, and flight attendant Eve Clayton is happy to see her since she and her father have a difficult relationship. Next up the stairs are Mrs. Livingston and her friend Dorothy, played by Olivia de Havilland and Mady Norman. I thought for sure they were a couple, and I was just like... I I think they might be, but they still just call her a friend, basically. I struggle so hard with the number of people in this movie and their names yes it took and i me didn't even have to write the notes on it yeah <laughs> i i just wrote the actor names for this for this movie of this type i just write but the, the actor yeah. names. but i honestly had trouble because like they don't constantly refer to each other it's like, like some of them they do refer mm-hmm. to each other by their names but some of them they only say them, like, there's one guy twice. in here i'm still not sure what his name was and, I and i'm really up, looking but i'm but i'm looking them up to try to figure out who the hell they are and i'm struggling because obviously this movie is older and some of these people went on to have other careers right. and the pictures the, all the pictures are of them old people older yeah a chef in the galley asks for help from the flight crew and we see that yet again fake pilot slash thrower has snuck his way into another job posing as a steward seems like each of these individual crews the airport's pilots the baggage throwers and the flight crew would all have been very well vetted especially on a billionaire's plane but these are back in the days of Catch Me If You Can, when Leonardo DiCaprio could just wander into a cockpit and crash a plane into whatever he felt like. But you know your coworkers. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're you just like, them out, hey, like, mystery person. 
<laughs> well, yeah, because and, and so <laughs> did the other conspirator now stewards also come in as pilots and change to, jobs just keep changing <laughs> just be stewards yeah the whole time <laughs> because none of the other stewards who are legit stewards seem to notice or care that these guys are here yeah, yeah and the thrower job is like an entry level situation they could have been stowed away under the plane and then unleashed their fury and that that would have been fine i would have believed that when Mrs. Livingston gets a look at the interior of the plane... Sorry. Hold on, because I have to go back to this. Because they hired stewards. They did. <laughs> they hired them as stewards. They have positions that need yeah, to be Yeah, it's filled. not like they were like, who are you and why are you trying to get on this plane and where yeah, did you get that uniform? Exactly. They, they are expected... Maybe they actually have all three of these jobs. <laughs> it was just a shit economy at the time. <laughs> they had to go to this job fair and interview like six times to get in here. Because yeah. you, you look at like Air Force One... Uh, uh, Gary Oldman impersonates a news crew and we see later the news crew's incapacitated or killed. Right. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. They took their place. They're, they didn't take anyone's place. Yeah. They were hired. They literally got they hired to do this. Under guys. fake names, maybe? <laughs> when Mrs. Livingston gets a look at the interior of the plane, she's blown away by its extravagance. It looks like an open floor plan lounge with shag carpeting and multiple wet bars. I'm blown away by the quantity of veneer in this place. Everything is covered in wood grain. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was very fancy at the time. She's greeted by a friend named Ralph Crawford, who is happy to see her, and she's brought to a table and introduced to M. Emmett Walsh as Dr. Herbert Williams and George Firth as Gerald Lucas. Evidently, there's bad blood between Livingston and Lucas here because she supports young artists and he criticizes them. She declares a truce between them until they land. Then she will presumably murder the man. <laughs> she challenges the table to a game of poker. Five card stud, $10 ante, no ceiling on raises, and nothing's wild. Any objections, boys? Back by the door to the plane, a young girl named Bonnie is showing a crayon drawing that she and her class have done to Mrs. Livingston's friend, Dorothy. This girl was selected by her school to present the drawing to Mr. Stevens personally. A flight attendant gets the attention of the passengers and announces the floor plan of the plane, which we see illustrated on a screen. They are in the main lounge, but there are separate bedrooms for passenger use if necessary. The cockpit is upstairs and the galley is downstairs. I miss when planes had spiral staircases on them. I do appreciate the fact that they talk about the layout, though, because yeah. I would have been wandering and yeah. Yeah. Like, confused the whole movie. It reminds me of, in fact, in Titanic, when he talks about like the different decks and the, yeah. the lifeboats and all this stuff, and you know, so that you understand. You needed the Mr. DNA moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I also miss when planes had bars on them, but uh, that's never going to happen again. I'll probably never go on another plane again, though, so I, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm sure that there's planes like this still in existence. Yeah. You will just never go on Exactly. Them. Yeah. This is like uh, like a Dubai Air or some really fancy where, where like, when you're in first class, you're, like, in an isolated pod seat that yeah. goes full 180 recline. That was actually the most infuriating thing watching the whole airport franchise is even in the first one, when you see the seats in coach and they're like more luxurious than the seats in first class now, yeah. where there's like literally a lady walking like a giant hunk of meat on a plate and carving out steaks for people. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, these people are walking in front of the aisle without anyone getting out of their seats so that they yeah. can go to the bathroom. It's like, what happened? Why did we squeeze all these seats together till everyone was touching? Well, have you seen like some of the plane concepts that they keep trying to pitch? Oh, I like, know that, that oh, where there people are sitting basically in each only. other's laps. It, yeah. Well, like, or they're standing only seats where they're kind of like, like the Superman rides where yeah. you're literally oh standing God. in a harness yeah. and you can't even sit. 
and look i would buy a ticket to that if they promised to do one fucking loop <laughs> <laughs> that's all i need is one uh the, the other one is i i oh, i hated where it's like a like a train car where you're sitting across from someone you're facing the other way of the plane like so oh, you, yeah so like That'd be nauseating yeah there's people facing forward and then other people facing backwards, but your legs are literally intercrossed with each yeah. other. No, no, uh, thank creepy. you. you know, I mean, depending on how hot they are, that's yeah. really gross. Well, They're but, Tim level. Yeah, hot. if it's Mel Gibson, <laughs> sign me up. At the start of the flight, the in-flight movie is a laser disc of a special message from Mr. Stevens himself, greeting them to the plane and expressing his excitement at having them all visit the grand opening of his museum mansion. Uh, Who's know, that? It's your grandpa. Have I ever met him? Mm-hmm. Once when you were a little boy. How little? Oh, like that. The Laserdisc player used in the film is real. It was one of the only Laserdisc players in existence at the time, and it was brought directly to the set from the home of Universal President Lou Wasserman. This was his personal Laserdisc player. I love the concept of there only being like five or six Laserdisc players in the world, yet someone is producing content for them? Right, and custom content. Amusingly, the flight attendant uses it wrong, failing to completely close the lid and pressing the wrong button to play the presentation. Next, the pilot does a broadcast directly from the cockpit into the lounge so the passengers can see out the front window as the plane takes off. That's cool. Bonnie, the Cran girl's mother, seems a little scared for takeoff. This first shot of the plane flying over the city out toward the water with the clouds floating by in the foreground is actually really pretty. I'm sure it's a mix of matte paintings and miniatures, but it looks great. In the lounge, a blind man, or possibly an incredibly cool man, is wearing wraparound <laughs> sunglasses. I was wondering, and I don't feel like I ever get the answer. No, he's blind. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. He's blind in real life. Uh, he's wearing sunglasses behind a piano and sings as he plays. Beauty is in the eye. All of his songs are about being blind. Are That's they, the well, other hint. No, 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 no. Hold up. <laughs> Beauty in the eye of the beholder does not necessarily mean he is it's blind. It's about eyes, and it's about <laughs> sight specifically. I get that. But yes, I get it. But then he also has this loving embrace with her face, which isn't necessarily trying to feel her face to make sure she's No, beautiful. face touching is always no. blind. A pretty girl played by Kathleen Quinlan seems entranced by his music. Lee Grant, as Karen Wallace, standing at the nearby bar, seems annoyed by their affection for each other, while bartender Eddie mixes her a drink. Benji is playing Pong against Dorothy, and Bonnie is cheering them on. For some reason, even though he wins, he's kicked off the table so that Bonnie can play against Dorothy. Karen Wallace at the bar collects her drink and stumbles away as though she's already had a few. She walks into an office compartment and finds a pair of businessmen having a discussion. She refers to their business as a hobby, and her husband, Martin Wallace, as played by Christopher Lee, is offended. A plan that can harvest the seas for food and save millions of people from starvation can hardly be called a hobby. I'm terribly sorry I didn't mean to offend. So I can't imagine what may be saving like that. Oh, Martin, I do hope that you'll let me apologize. Martin is successfully annoyed out of the room by Mrs. Wallace's blathering, but his associate, Frank, stays behind with Mrs. Wallace. Why do you treat him that way? He loves it. She doesn't want to deal with Frank's judgment and threatens to tell Martin about an affair they've been having. What do you think that Martin would say if he knew about us? I really don't think he'd mind. Do you? Do you? I'm going to ask him. Karen! What? Frank is dumbfounded by her behavior. You're blackmailing me. Well, who else have I got to blackmail? I don't get to fool around that much. 
The plane cruises out over open ocean just as Eve Clayton delivers some coffees to the pilots, including her boyfriend, Captain Gallagher. Gallagher has Mr. Stevens on the phone and hands it to Eve. Eve and Mr. Stevens appear to know each other well, and she informs him that his daughter and grandson, Lisa and Benji, are on the plane. They're there. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> They're there. Well, that's wonderful. Wait, I don't know how you did it, Eve, but I thank you a million times. Oh, you don't have to thank me. She decided all by herself. As soon as he hangs up, Stevens orders a car to take him to the airport to greet his arriving guests. Before she leaves the cockpit, she asks Gallagher if they can discuss his proposal further over dinner tonight after they land the plane in Palm Beach. The spies on board are worried about a security guard seated near where their operation is set to take place. I don't understand why, because aren't they going to gas everybody? Yes, they are, so that doesn't make any sense. Also, here's a question. Why do they hire a security guard if everyone here is by invitation or hired employees that they didn't bother to vet? millions of dollars worth of art on there. You don't want anybody ambushing. That's why you have guards where you load it and where you take it down. You don't need a guard on the plane where it's only surrounded yeah, by people you invited. Or, or if it's on the plane, it's in a secured room that you can't open. Right, which like, it is. Well, but you can open it. Like, like yeah, the, that's true. Yeah, the, the, but they it, can because they're employees of the flight. Yeah, I say no. It should be impossible to open from the inside. Yeah, Mrs. Livingston is brought champagne with an ice cube in it and recognizes the drink from the past. The steward hands her a business card for a Mister Nicholas Saint Downs the Third, London, 1936, and she realizes that a former flame is here on the plane. Is that the last time that they met? I think the, so. Yes. Okay. Because he had a card made up. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> or, handwritten for the London 1936 okay. part. Because like, I also felt like, like that could have been like his address, like London 1936. I live but, at London 1936. <laughs> the you know, homeless like, people just get numbered. I don't know how foreign addresses were. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> He's you, posing as a British person. You no, know, no. It's like it's like when you watch a movie and they-, they One, they, two, three, fake street. <laughs> no, it's like when they, in old movies where they call people, it's like, get me, get me Willowbrook, 742. <laughs> what was Piggy's address? I was Highbrow Street. I don't remember yes. the number. Highbrow Street. That's right. Yes, Highbrow Street. Highbrow Street. Absolutely right. Highbrow Street. How did you guess? Are you a psychic? She finds Mr. St. Downs seated across the lounge on a couch played by Joseph Cotton. He seems to be an art dealer now, and it's been some time since they saw each other. He shows her some pieces he brought along for the flight with jade and massive diamonds in them. The pilots notice a disturbing reading from the center hold downstairs, and they send Darren McGavin as Stan Buchek to check on it. Eve chats with Eddie the bartender about his pregnant wife and she learns they're expecting twins. She asks him to point her in the direction of Mr. Steven's daughter and he says she's upstairs. Eddie steps away to call his wife and backup bartender Larry takes over. Benji wanders downstairs and finds Buchek checking all the downstairs compartments. Benji's ears pop when they close the door and he asks why. That's air pressure, Benji. Each one of these holds is airtight when it's sealed. How come? Well... So we can carry all kinds of different things in the cargoes. This ship's special. And I guess there's a difference between airtight and wattertight. No, I don't think there is. I think that the it compartments just wasn't there... as effective as they thought it was. <laughs> the the safe is not airtight. The the individual compartments for the luggage stuff are airtight and watertight. Okay. Yeah. He calls back up to the cockpit, and the reading is all clear now that they've made some adjustment. Apparently an indicator light was stuck. Nothing to do with the scheme. More likely just exposition to know that these are airtight compartments. Yeah. Uh, also, that this control panel controls everything in the plane. Right. Because they just keep coming back to the control panel and fiddling with wires. This could have just been a part of the flight attendant's speech, though. We didn't need to add a scene where they explain it to the kid. 
Eve and Lisa talk about her father. Lisa's embarrassed to be running back to him, but it's been two years and she's tried to make a life for herself and her son without him. She wants to show him what she's accomplished, but Eve asks her to please be kind to Mr. Stevens because she cares more about him right now than she does about his daughter. She confesses that Mr. Stevens is ill and only has months to live, which is really not her place to reveal, but she's trying to prevent Lisa from making an uncomfortable scene when they get to the mansion in Palm Beach. She doesn't believe her at first, but Eve convinces her. Captain Gallagher's co-pilot Chambers, played by Robert Foxworth, takes a walking break. Downstairs, he touches base with Banker, the disguised leader of the spies, and says that they'll need to convince Gallagher out of the cockpit. Apparently, our co-pilot is in cahoots. Back at the piano, Christopher Lee, as Martin, is leaning over the instrument between the player and the girl watching him. Martin is romanticizing the diving part of his underwater operations. It's, it's like exploring a world that's been hidden from man since the beginning of time. It's beautiful, really beautiful. I couldn't do that. Water terrifies me. Oh, it shouldn't. It's wonderful down there. In fact, it's about the only time I ever really feel free. We get the impression that by free he means away from Mrs. Wallace, who shows up on cue to kick the pretty girl off the piano so she can chat more with her husband. Specifically, she tells her to get her ass out of the way. That was very cruel, Karen. If I weren't cruel, Martin, how would people know how kind you are? If I weren't such a sinner, how could you look like such a saint? Isn't that why we're together? Lee Grant as Mrs. Wallace gets all the best lines in the movie, and I really love this character. <laughs> We cut downstairs where the lone security guard for the flight is just about to eat his dinner when Banker, the disguised spy, cracks him across the back of the head with a blackjack. He wastes some time trying to tie the man's arms together before his partner points something out. Forget it. What? You hit him too hard. He's dead. Neither spy seems to care much what they've done. The co-pilot checks his watch in the cockpit as if to track the plot unfolding downstairs. One of the spies crawls up to the CR-7 canister and puts on the gas. Banker pages Captain Gallagher from the bedroom, posing as the flight steward. He tells him there's an emergency that requires his attention specifically. Gallagher puts Chambers in charge and leaves to check on the supposedly ill passenger in the bedroom compartment. Chambers flicks on the autopilot in Gallagher's absence and grabs a gun to knock out his navigator with. See, that's such a bad idea yeah. to hit somebody with a, gun. with a gun while you're in the cockpit. Use a stick if you're in here. As soon as Gallagher enters the bedroom, Banker knocks him unconscious with the same blackjack. All three spies are now in gas masks, and the CR-7 is released through the ventilation shaft. We hear a hissing sound as it's pumped through the air conditioning into the lounge. Mr. St. Downs III is pouring a glass of champagne for Mrs. Livingston when he passes out, and she follows him quickly to the floor. Suddenly, the piano playing dribbles away as the player collapses, and within 30 seconds, everybody's down. I already mentioned how dangerous this gas is, but if it knocked out all the adults, I'm assuming the kids are dead. <laughs> Bonnie is sprawled out over the pong table, and downstairs the gas canister is shut off. Banker tries to strip some unconscious passengers of their jewelry, but he's told there's no time for that. The third spy, whose name I never caught, is sent to the cargo hold where all the expensive art pieces are being kept. Seems like there's plenty of time. Yeah. Because the plan is... To fly the plane to an island. Yeah, it's land, like, take all this art out, yeah, put it in another plane. Like, these guys have nothing to do while in this meantime. Yeah. They're way off course, and the air traffic controllers lose sight of the plane, probably on account of them flying so low over the ocean to keep them out of radar range. They're in the Bermuda Triangle. I'll try to contact them by radio. They're going to land the plane on St. George Island via a runway that's been out of use since World War II, and then unload it and flee before the passengers wake up and the security guard doesn't wake up. 
And probably also this navigator doesn't wake up. I'm, I'm hoping that the runway is long enough yeah. to take off again. Well, well, it's a pretty big plane. Lane. Well, I, I, I don't, I don't think that their plan was to take off the plane again. I think they, they probably they were going to leave boat. it there. Yeah, yeah, they probably had boats or something in position. Mm. But even so, the plane needs enough room to land on. Yeah, and right. uh, if this runway is like a World War II runway, yeah, it's for jets and stuff. It's not for passenger planes. Mister Stevens is informed that his plane is missing, and he is understandably worried. The Navy and Coast Guard are out in tandem looking for the plane, but the plane has gone way off course since the air traffic controllers lost it, so they're looking in the wrong place. Do you guys remember the last time people were looking in the wrong place? (laughs) (laughs) What do you got, Richard? Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's (laughs) right. They're digging in the wrong place. They're digging in the wrong place. It seems the gas wears off faster than planned because the passengers in the lounge are already starting to wiggle their legs which is the first sign of life. The thieves check every painting before they take it, even though they're probably all worth a shit ton. Yeah. Unless you're tight on space, maybe take all of these. Unless one of them is the kids drawing it. Hold on. We gotta, fuck <laughs> this stupid painting. <laughs> like, hold on, we, we have to make sure the kid's drawing somewhere in here. It just seems dangerous to open them at all. Take everything that's in this safe, yep. which is in the safe for a reason, put it in your truck, and go. I always felt that... Art, stealing art was famous art was always a weird thing to do yeah because but it increases in value right when you take it right but you can't realize that value in an open market you know because right but you can sell it to a crooked trillionaire yeah, who's only going to show it to be a his fraction friends. of what it could what it's what it's actually worth because you can't just sell it to anyone but a fraction is worth it sometimes yeah like if i if i had a 500 million dollar painting and the guy's paying me 50 million per painting it's like yeah okay <laughs> great i don't give a <laughs> it, shit it cost me zero to acquire yeah. and i know painting. the actual value is nothing because it's just a bunch of oil smeared on canvas dumb art collectors the view from the cockpit gets foggy and they're at such a low elevation that by the time the co-pilot notices an oil rig approaching it's too late to avoid it they tap a wing on the tower of the rig and the plane is sent hurtling into the water Th- this really bothered me that this was never addressed addressed yeah because is we, it an abandoned oil rig yeah it's like uh i try to tell you these are unmanned oil rigs yeah <laughs> crusty is a burger <laughs> franchise <laughs> uh but yeah i was like no one's gonna report that a, a plane, plane hit us <laughs> maybe the guy who's gonna report it was standing at the top taking oh. a piss <laughs> he just got smashed with a wing with each bounce all the passengers are being jostled awake and then immediately thrown about the lounge stan grabs bonnie and captain gallagher tells everyone to hold on tight when the plane comes to a sudden stop, someone, I couldn't tell who, is tossed through a plate glass window, and the pianist is crushed to the wall behind his instrument. The what now? The pianist is crushed by his instrument. Why wasn't that piano secured to the to the plane? <laughs> yeah, it's an airplane. You're going to have turbulence, and you don't want this piano yeah. dancing around in there. Yeah, they bank and do all kinds of stuff. Dorothy gets rocked hard in the head with what looks like a flying television or something. It's a really brutal hit. A cart in the cargo hold slides across the floor and punches a hole in the outer wall of the plane, letting water into the airtight compartment. It then slides back across the room and pinches Banker against the wall, so he's crushed while the compartment floods and he quickly disappears under the water. The passengers get their bearings and realize they've just survived a plane crash. Mrs. Wallace notices out the window that they're sinking below the surface of the water. There's still a lot of air in this plane, though, and it for sure wouldn't sink. Airplanes are extremely light already, but when they're airtight and full of air, they just don't sink to the bottom of the ocean. Everyone is suddenly screaming, but luckily the plane touches down at the bottom of the ocean 30 feet down. 
I could have sworn the ocean was deeper than this, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, but I feel like in the description or like later in the film, they say something about 200 feet. I'm like, never in this entire movie does it look like 200 no. feet because they have yeah. divers going down yeah. to it. Divers, the plane don't, is- divers don't easily go down 200 feet without having like staged, you know, mm-hmm. uh, recovery yeah. zones. And and the plane is practically touching the bottom and still sticking out of the water at the same time. Yeah, you can you can you can see the plane from the air. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, given the depth, when Jack, well, we, we'll get to it. But there's a scene where like, oh, well, you got the bends. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Captain Gallagher assures the panicking passengers that the fuselage is pressurized and that the flight's movements have been tracked by radar all along, so help is for sure on the way. At the very least, somebody on that oil rig will probably put in a call about getting hit by a goddamn plane. (laughs) Bonnie is still unconscious, and her mother is freaking out about it. Of course, Mrs. Wallace, the sloppy drunk, accuses Gallagher of having done this. Mr. St. Downs and Mrs. Livingston are taking care of Dorothy, conked out against an emergency exit door. Dorothy looks worried about the children, and Mrs. Livingston lies that they're fine. Won't somebody please think of the children? (laughs) That Bonnie girl is definitely not dead, Dorothy. Just don't look over there. Lisa and Eve were still unconscious upstairs, and Lisa freaks out when she realizes Benji is missing. Gallagher assures her that he's okay downstairs, but she screams and runs off. Eve still doesn't know what happened. My God. What's going on here? Look, Steve, we crashed. We crashed. Yes, we crashed. Now listen to me. There's people down below and they're seriously injured and we got... She's freaking out and he begs her to calm down and help him take care of the passengers. When Gallagher gets back into the cockpit, he finds the fake flight crew spy dead and his co-pilot Chambers unconscious and bleeding. As he tries to unbuckle the co-pilot, he notices a gun in the man's waistband and understands implicitly that his co-pilot was a mole for these art thieves. It's also possible that he wrestled a gun away from this would-be hijacker in the cockpit, but that excuse doesn't occur to either of them. I think it would have been neat to have Chambers lie and then just end the movie with everyone thinking he was a hero uninvolved in the robbery. (laughs) You just have him like sideways glancing at everybody on the deck. Yeah, he could even say, this guy... Came at me with a gun, and I tried to fight him back. He knocked out my navigator. Dr. Williams is checking on the passengers one at a time and diagnoses Bonnie with some unknown internal injuries. See, I can tell because she's injured, but not so much on the outside. (laughs) I'm going to call these internal injuries. (laughs) Doctor says I have internal bleeding, but that's where the blood's supposed to be. Perfect. (laughs) Buchek is asked to make an estimate of how long the plane can last before it ruptures, and he hopes long enough for the rescue teams to find them. But really, it's like, who knows? We hit yeah. a thing and then we crashed into water really hard. Man, uh, you know, planes are designed for low pressure, not right. extreme high pressure. Yeah. And even though they're not down that far, you know, the 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 freaking aluminum that these planes are made from. It would, should be crushed. Yeah, exactly. I, it wouldn't be super crushed, but enough where all the seals would give yeah. out. And definitely if there's 200 feet of water above the plane, mm-hmm. it would be flattened like a like an aluminum can. Because it is an aluminum can, quite literally. Mm -hmm. They hear a tiny voice somewhere, and they find Eddie in the radio room with a piece of heavy equipment crushing his legs. They lift it off him and cut open his pant leg to inspect the injury, and it's bleeding a lot. Not to mention, this guy's about to be a father of twins, so that's two counts against him surviving the film. (laughs) Uh, Dare I say that he's also African-American? Oh, yeah, that's (laughs) that's another thing in the 70s. You're not going to make it. (laughs) Stan puts Dr. Williams on the case of the bleeding leg. Williams borrows Martin and another passenger for help, and they start looking for whiskey. 
The word whiskey reminds Martin of his wife, and he moves to comfort her before leaving to help the other passengers. I thought for sure he was going to say, give me your purse. <laughs> That's they what it says. I thought at first he was going to ask her for whiskey to help the doctor instead of comforting her at all. Because she made a point of showing that, look at all these liquors that yeah, I have. Yeah, she's sneaking all the J&B bottles. Don't leave me. Just for a minute, just for a minute, just don't leave me alone. But, Karen, there are injured people here who need help. Well, you're supposed to take care of me. I mean, what's going to happen to me? I'm sorry, my dear, but the doctor needs me. Also, you're not injured, so just sit down and relax for a second. People are bleeding to death. Downstairs, Buchek finds a circuit breaker to get the lights back on, and they can hear running water. There are bulges in the interior of the plane that threaten to rupture. There's also a leaky safe door on the bottom floor, and water is slowly trickling in around it. Pretty girl Julie is taking care of the smashed piano player, Steve. She offers him water, and he touches her face and tells her he loves her. She gives him one of her earrings for some reason, like she's goddamn Cinderella or something. Did they have a relationship before they were on this plane? Because when he doesn't know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they've been together for years, but he's never seen her. Yeah. I just like the way she's staring at him. Yeah. When we from first the beginning, meet yeah. These, at the beginning, it's like, oh, you you just found this dude that you found attractive playing piano on the plane, and you know you're enamored. But like to go then when you're dying to be like, I love you, and I yeah. just met you five minutes ago. Like, I literally weird. didn't know you were at the piano all night. This is the first time I've felt your face. These are the first words you've said to me just now when you asked me if I wanted water. I didn't know you existed until it, you said that. I, I kept, I, I went back to like all the scenes that I could they, remember. They never talked to each other. Yeah, I was like, did I miss, there, there's something I've missed yeah. or, or didn't see. She fills his water glass, but by... <laughs> Sorry, <I didn't laughs> Something see. you didn't see. <laughs> uh. <laughs> she fills his water glass, and by the time she comes back, Steve is dead, and she cries on his corpse. It's a classic case of boy meets girl, piano meets boy against the wall, <laughs> boy meets death. Gallagher and Buchek touch all the doors downstairs, assuming the cold doors are flooded and the room temperature doors are not. I don't know why they have to test all these airtight doors unless they really need stuff from these rooms, but they don't seem to. Well, I, I would say that there's it becomes air, an escape path. Well, there's air locked in there. Do uh, you think they're that hard up for oxygen already? They might I mean, get to that point. Maybe. For sure. They need to know how much space they got. But also, like, as things start to potentially flood, you need to know how where you can go. Sure. Captain, the co-pilots regain consciousness. Benji asks his mom if Bonnie's going to die since she still hasn't woken up. Mom says everything will be okay. And I wanted her to say, but you know who is going to die? Your grandfather. Awake again, Chambers admits that they were flying too low to show up on radar, and the rescue teams will have no idea where they are. Chambers flew us a couple of hundred miles off course. The search planes will never look for us here. There's no chance of We're on our own. We cut to the tactical office, where George Kennedy, as Joe Petroni, the only common character of the four films, is brought up to speed on the situation. And I assume people are, like, standing up and applauding in the theater, like, hooray, he showed up. Once Petroni knows all the pertinent details, he takes Mr. Stevens on a walk to brief the man. Petroni assures Mr. Stevens that based on the manpower devoted to this operation, that if there are survivors, they will find them. My daughter and my grandson are on that plane, you know that? We cut back to the plane at the bottom of the ocean as Eddie is carried into the lounge by four men and laid across a couch. A flight attendant asks the doctor how bad his fracture is and he confesses in secret that he is technically a doctor of veterinary medicine for Mr. Stevens' stable of horses, but he's doing the best he can. She agrees to keep this information between them. 
Captain Gallagher and Buchek pore over the available schematics of the plane's complex circuitry. While they inspect the blueprints, water begins to drip from a bulge in the ceiling onto the page they're looking at. Buchek lifts up a window shade to see water is pouring in between the panes of glass in the windows. Mrs. Livingston and Lisa are hugging and crying together when Livingston thinks she hears something. She calls for silence and all the passengers shut up simultaneously. They identify a distant humming sound as a passing ship and assume that rescue is at hand. Just as quickly as it arrives, it departs and it sinks in that the ship has unknowingly passed them by. It's just a passing ship. They didn't even know that we were here. That's enough. Nobody does. I said that's enough. More than enough, Mr. Gallagher. The doctor is seeing to Bonnie and her mother asks if she's doing any better, but she's only doing worse. He notices her temperature has gotten higher. There's only so much he can do from here. We cut back to Livingston and St. Downs Third as he uses a handkerchief to dab at her tears. Captain Gallagher finds something in the schematics to indicate a shortcut in the circuitry that they can use to open a compartment remotely from inside the plane. It could be dangerous to the structural integrity of the plane, but they also need to send someone to the surface or else risk never being found. The captain explains the plan to the passengers unnecessarily. They will send a person in a raft with a radio to the surface. They will close said person into an airtight compartment downstairs and activate an exterior door for the person to escape through. Captain Gallagher has volunteered to be that man to bring a radio to the surface, and Martin Wallace is quick to volunteer himself as a backup since he has lots of scuba diving experience, also probably to get away from his wife. Again, Mrs. Wallace is furious to see her husband volunteering for this dangerous work when she needs personal consolation. Let the pilot go. Why are you taking a chance like this? I'm not doing this for the pilot, Karen. I'm doing it for all of us. We're us. We're us. There are a bunch of strangers. That's your problem. You think everybody is us. Can't you forget about other people for once and think about yourself? Other people thinking about themselves have got us down here in the first place, Karen. He gives her a kiss goodbye before heading down with Captain Gallagher to the exit plan. Eve also kisses Captain Gallagher goodbye. I feel like it's a weird choice for, like, I know that the captain is volunteering because it is a potentially life-threatening thing that he's doing in but order. He's supposed to, to go to down with the ship. Well, yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. That I'm just like, but also, if you're successful, you might be the only one that survives this entire thing i'm sure that's really why he's volunteering but i would think that you would be like who's the most capable person who's not the captain because i would leave the captain to keep order on the ship yeah they should have just put everyone in this room well or at least like as maybe they only had the two but how many oxygen masks do you have like yeah i don't take, know take somebody with you and like shove them out the door when you get in there and yeah. just have them go to the surface. You worry about the boat part. Yeah. Gallagher and Martin are locked into the airtight compartment and stand against the door side until the outside hatch has been electronically activated. As a pair of wires are crossed to open the outer door, the lights flicker throughout the plane and the plane is underway. The doors seem to be stuck, or at least not opening fully, and Gallagher assumes it's just another crossed wire somewhere. Martin moves to unblock the door by hand, but just as Gallagher warns him away, it bursts open and water blasts him across the room, knocking him unconscious. Or knocking him dead, maybe. It, it, yeah, I mean, I guess... I think it, he hit the wall hard enough. Well, it, it, he's probably unconscious, but what can he do? Like, right. They, they, he can't get him back into the plane. Yeah. yeah that's, but that's also when I say, just shove him out the door and he'll float to the surface and, you know, cross your fingers. Yeah. 
Captain Gallagher only has two and a half minutes of air in his small oxygen tank, but takes the time to verify that Martin is dead before exiting the plane. Because Christopher Lee insisted on playing his own drowned corpse for this shot, he was awarded a belt buckle by the stuntman's union. They were like, good job, buddy. The passengers watched through the plane's outer windows looking for any sign of the two men, and when only Captain Gallagher surfaces, they deduce the fate of Martin Wallace. But not just that. His dead body does float past the window. Once again, leaving his wife behind. (laughs) Yeah. I feel so free. To protect her from the shock, Dr. Williams dumps a bunch of whiskey in her mouth from one of those tiny airline bottles. Meanwhile, Captain Gallagher is able to work his way to the surface with the raft and radio. On the surface, Captain Gallagher activates a beacon to notify the search and rescue teams of their location. We have a beeper. Navy Search 5, this is Navy Search Base. We have an emergency beeper in coordinates 27 degrees north, 65 degrees west. Proceed and investigate. This is Navy Search 5. We'll go out. This radio operator is actually Jack Lemon's son, Christopher Lemon. I'm sure Richard already looked this up, but so did I. And it's ocean, all right, those coordinates. <laughs> Any combination of numbers was probably most likely to be ocean, but this happens to be just south of Bermuda, which is where the Bermuda Triangle is found. Now, the signal on this raft, is it also radio-based? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's a... It's it's a it's a radio signal, yeah. Because originally they're like it'll be activated when it hits the surface, and so I thought it was like one of those things that's just like oh, when it gets wet, it activates, and then you know. But I guess it would have to be on the surface in order to reach anyone because mm-hmm. right. radio yeah. won't work through water. Yeah. Do you guys recall the last time we dealt with the Bermuda Triangle? A reporter was writing an article about all the missing crafts, and he discovered an alternate explanation. Was, was it the island? It was the island. Yeah. Mrs. Wallace has to fix her makeup from all the crying before returning to the other passengers. She decides on suicide to solve her depression and fidgets with the plane's outer door for a minute until Eve Clayton approaches to stop her. It's more like mass murder. Right, yeah. that's true. And, suicide door opening. And and no one does anything to help Eve. Well, yeah, it's true. She's by herself there. And everyone else can tell what's happening and they're freaking out about it. Mrs. Wallace, I have to leave. I, Why? You don't have to leave. If you open that door, you'll be hurting a lot of people here. Please don't. Don't do it. They wrestle over the handle for a moment, and when it's clear this woman is going to get them all killed, Eve has to knock her out with a right cross. I don't know if you could open that door. I'm, as much as the plane is pressurized, because that door opens out. Right. So as much as the plane is pressurized, I don't know if it's enough to offset the pressure. Yeah, it might be of like the door that MythBuster situation. Closed. You have to break a window before you can open Gotta the door. Equalize. Yeah. yeah. This moment reportedly played to ravenous applause in theaters, though, when she knocks out <laughs> Mrs. Yeah, Wallace I with bet. the punch. Just then, a jet passes overhead to verify the location of the plane and sees the raft and the plane through the surface of the water. Amazingly, since the plane is completely visible from its like thirty feet down position. The model used for this overhead shot is 14 feet square. They wanted something that had a sense of scale to it. Captain Gallagher waves at the passing jet as it tips its wings back and forth to acknowledge that he was seen. Come on, baby. Come on, yes! Yeah! 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 Oh, give me a wing! And a wing! Their location is reported back to rescue headquarters and everyone celebrates. The jet pilot reports that the aircraft is fully underwater and only a single survivor is visible. Mr. Stevens hears this and looks upset until the pilot confirms that the fuselage of the sunken plane appears fully intact. He's not upset enough for my taste because he has 
two family members on that right. airplane. <laughs> well, to be fair to Jimmy Stewart, this is dialogue that's being put into the shot afterwards. So he might not have known what's supposed to be said over the radio and reacted to it properly. The team in charge of finding the plane now puts together a plan to raise it from the ocean floor. I want this to be a first stage alert. It could be helos, scuba teams, compressors, air hose packages, the works. I want this treated exactly like an emergency sub-salvage operation. Mr. Stevens is offered the chance to join the SS Cayuga, the responding battleship, en route to the rescue site. Joe Petroni is also invited, but turns the offer down, announcing he's of more use here. The choreography of this rescue mission is worked out exactly like a real-life sub-salvage, step by step. They loop massive yellow belts under the plane. Inside, the leaks are getting worse, and water is pooling all over the place. And when we say sub-salvage... Like if a submarine sinks and, and loses power to surface. Right. So, Or if it's damaged. With people potentially with survivors, on yes. board, yeah. alive. Yep. Okay. New leaks are brought to Buchek's attention, but there's nothing much anybody can do now except wait and pray. He urges everyone to the opposite end of the plane in case the leaks get worse fast. The approaching ship notices the raft and sends an inflatable raft out to pick up Captain Gallagher. A follow-up boat full of frogmen look for the plane from the surface of the water. Mr. Stevens is on a helicopter headed for the battleship. Once Captain Gallagher is brought on board the battleship, he's led to the captain of the SS Cayuga. He tells the captain what's going on under the water. There are survivors, but they're running out of air down there. We see the plane rocking in the silt on the ocean floor, and the passengers are all freaking out as water continues to pour into the lounge. The captain on the battleship is in radio contact with Joe Petroni, who gives him instructions on the stress points to avoid when bringing the plane up to the surface. Now, they did show a snippet of the plane seemingly to be approaching some kind of trench. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that never comes into play. Yeah. I did feel like maybe it's stuck on the top of like an underwater butte almost, mm -hmm. and it's about to go over an edge into a a yeah, Mariana Trench. It definitely was established like it was going to be worse. Yeah. Something that came back to affect them and, and they had to deal with and they yeah. never did. Petroni warns that at any point the fuselage could rupture and they need to be prepared for that. Captain Gallagher uses the stress points information to talk his way onto the dive team despite an amateur rating as a diver. Do you guys remember the last time somebody discovered a plane sunken off the coast of Florida? Yes. It was that movie whose title escapes me. Our previous Patreon pick. It was called... I'll give you a clue. It moves at night. Oh. Night moves. That's right. Another terrible title for a movie. Yep. Some of the divers on the team think this whole balloon rescue attempt is a waste of time, even though this is exactly how they would recover a sunken submarine. I guess submarines are armored. So yeah. they would survive this process easier. But still, you wouldn't think balloons were so ridiculous if you'd seen them work. The dive team tip backwards out of their boats and swim down to the plane. The passengers inside are relieved to see a diving rescue team on approach. Outside the windows, Captain Gallagher holds up a sign that says they're lifting the plane and advising everyone to find a secure position. The divers enter the room that Gallagher escaped through, and he points out the stress points in the structure of the plane. Swimming around the outside, he uses a marker to draw X's all around the plane for areas to avoid or not to avoid. No, I think he's the marking where supports. the balloons go. Yeah. I hope they discussed this signal ahead of time. <laughs> they just wrap up all the weak points and just tear the plane to shreds. Oh, it's two words. It's a movie. Okay, first syllable. <laughs> we should have talked about this above water. <laughs> the dive team return to the boats and come back with their equipment to wrap the plane up. They feed a metal bar under the plane through the dirt and then hook it onto a belt on the opposite side and pull the belt under the plane. 
Balloons are attached to the ends of the belts on each side and strapped in place. Do you recall the last time we had to secure a uh, large pockets of air to a ship to bring it up to the surface? Raise the Titanic? <laughs> yeah. Balloons are attached to the ends of the belts on each side and strapped in place. Inside, the passengers are freaked out about the sounds of the belts being dragged under the plane. Back on the surface, air is pumped through hoses to fill the U.S. Navy balloons strapped to each end of the belt around the plane. My big concern was how to make sure that the right balloons are being filled enough. Because you, so you don't want, want to tip it. Yeah, you, you don't want the plane coming up nose first because you put too much air in the front balloons. And but it kind of does back. come up nose first when it starts to lift off the ground. Well, because it's unevenly weighted, not the whole, yeah, the whole right, plane yeah. isn't flooded evenly. It, it seems like, like you would have to have each set of balloons on a separate pump and you would have to radio in like yeah. all right you need like more on four just to to get it yeah. to come up evenly because that's also putting stress right if it's tweaking it. if, if it's torquing back and forth you'd want it to come up all in one yeah. stroke as they fill with air the hoses stiffen and the balloons inflate tugging the belts toward the surface the balloons lift the giant yellow straps fed under the plane and the fuselage slowly lifts off the ocean floor headed nose first for the surface to add some last-minute tension, the safe door downstairs cracks open and water gushes into the bottom of the plane. As a result, it suddenly becomes heavier and one of the yellow straps breaks. If these straps are built to carry submarines off the ocean floor, there's no way they would break lifting an airplane, first of all. Second of all, if one did break, the others would certainly also break because they're now taking on the weight of the first destroyed strap. But instead, everything goes fine and they slow down in their inflation of the balloons so the plane can be brought to the surface. At the same time, white water is blasting into the lounge, and the passengers scream as they are washed across the floor of the plane. This was a uh, very Titanic-like for me. Yeah. As, yeah. as the as everyone's being swept away by water. And it looks like it's the actual cast getting yeah. hit by huge swells of water. Karen Wallace is completely washed away, screaming for her husband to save her. If he hadn't inadvertently committed suicide earlier, he might have been able to save his wife here. Benji is almost washed away too until Buchek grabs the kid and they're able to pull him out of the water. When the plane breaches the surface, boats move in to collect the surviving passengers. The water drains out of the lounge and back into the ocean. We get a quick insert of Karen Wallace dead in the water. One of the frogmen tries to add a last minute ticking clock, but it's not super convincing. You better get those people out of there fast so that plane can go down as quick as it came up. But did you see the balloons get attached? It's got balloons. Yeah. Should be good. Are these balloons just going to pop all of a sudden? Apparently they are. Mrs. Livingston tries to share with Dorothy that they seem safe now and realizes her friend has passed away. Buchek opens the side door above the wing and instructs injured passengers to be transported to safety first, then children, then women, and then adult men. Jesus Christ. Everybody just run through this freaking door. Yeah. Like, I know that you're supposed to stay organized in an emergency, but the slowness at which people exit this airplane drives me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it seems like they would have open doors on both sides. Like, I don't, just, and there's don't also not bother, that many people on the plane. Yeah. Don't even bother getting in a boat. Just jump out of this door as fast as anybody can walk through mm -hmm. a door and jump. Like, yeah. get in the water, get out of this airplane. They'll fish you out of the water. Just jump out of the plane now. Despite not being a doctor, Mrs. Livingston is comfortable pronouncing Dorothy dead and leaving her body on the sinking plane. The rescue boats are quickly filled with passengers, and the plane should be getting lighter this whole time. As they search the plane, someone finds the evil pilot, Chambers, seemingly crushed to death by a table in the last flooding of the lounge, but I like to think Eve did this to save everybody a trial. Another strap buckles and the plane shakes, tossing Buchek out onto the wing while Eve falls back into the plane, the last survivor aboard. Captain Gallagher goes in after her and drags her through the rushing water up the spiral staircase into the cockpit where the top of the plane is still above water. 
bubbling whitewater chases them up the stairs, but they're able to close themselves into the cockpit, where he opens an emergency exit off the side of the cockpit and throws her out into the waves. I was like, I, I, at first I was like, don't open that door without sealing the cockpit first. Right, yeah. Because that bubble of air is keeping the plane up. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're going to open that door and all that air, the water is just going to fill that void. Yeah, but suddenly it sinks rapidly. But he has scuba gear on still, right? Yeah, he does. So he's fine. No, but you can share one tank of air. You can pass the, you know, the regulator back and forth. Yeah. So, like, I feel like I would have sat right there, passed the regulator back and forth as the cabin fills with air and just gone out the door that's right in front of you. Yeah. Like, I know you can't go through it when the water's rushing in, but wait two minutes. Yeah. Like, d- stop going. It's like, it was like running up the stairs in a horror film. I'm like, what right. are you doing? But there was an exit upstairs, so it's okay. <sighs> As they swim to their rescue, the plane sinks back below the surface. As it goes down, more and more of the U.S. Navy balloons break loose and rocket through the surface of the water. The survivors stand in small groups all over the deck of the battleship, coming to terms with what they've survived. Mr. Stevens hugs and kisses his daughter and lifts his grandson to introduce himself. Benji, I'm your grandpa. The last few injured passengers are loaded into a medevac chopper, even though this ship for sure has medical facilities of some sort. Maybe their particular injuries are too complicated for a non-hospital to deal with properly. The rescue chopper that collected Eve and Gallagher touches down on the deck, and they profess their love for each other and kiss before stepping out to rejoin the others. The passengers are quick to hug and cry around the captain and his no-doubt fiancé. A title card reads, The incident portrayed in this film is fictional. The rescue capabilities utilized by the Navy are real. An aerial shot pulls away from the crowd on the deck of the ship as credits roll and the film is over. I'm less impressed than I am angry about how much money we waste on that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. How much did this cost American taxpayers? People's lives are important. I'm not I mean, saying could, don't try to rescue people, but, you know, the amount of money we spend on the military. They could bill Mr. Stevens for everything. Or are you talking about in real life? Real life. Yeah, that's true. It's like, like what? A, you do this in real life? That, what, what that was the last movie expensive. that we had where the, the Navy like it was donated? Raise the Titanic, wasn't it? Well, Raise the Titanic uh, did it, but before countdown. that, Final Countdown did a lot of it. Um, and they let them use the planes oh, and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did like the midair refueling. Right, yeah. Yeah, and the, then the crazy airplane stunts showing off that almost killed somebody. <laughs> but every time one of those movies comes out, people are like, I want to do that for a living. I'm going to sign up for well, the yeah, Navy. I mean, it's, it's a their, recruiting tool it's for It's their recruiting tool. Yeah. I get that. But it doesn't make me any happier that they spend way too much money. Yeah. But this movie is definitely of the four the best one because Concord is really shaky and it has like the least impressive cast of the four i feel like this is still a really solid cast even though like jack lemon is clearly the headliner and he was kind of at a low point in his career yeah. at this moment in time um i feel like you know olivia de havilland and joseph cotton lend it like this a lot of gravitas and all these other people are great and the acting is great and i, I love brenda vaccaro obviously but uh the first film is very very slow um it makes sense though there's there's no logic problems with the first film but the the fourth film makes no sense because it's just like why are why are we taking this concord that was shot at with missiles yesterday back into the air today mm-hmm. without an investigation nobody is like debriefed they don't like arrest anybody or check the plane for damage before they fly yeah, yeah. it back into the sky um like literally the second the second leg of the trip it's practically tearing in half because it's so fucked up from the first flight um and then the second movie has all these really weird pacing issues because I think they decided somewhere along the line that a woman could not possibly land a plane without pilot experience. So 
they literally instead of just having someone explain to her how to land a plane like they do in the movie airplane karen black is in the cockpit and they literally fly a helicopter fast enough to drop somebody through the hole in the cockpit to take over landing the plane (laughs) and so charlton heston gets dropped into the cockpit to land the plane for her because she couldn't possibly be expected to know how to do that and uh that also happens with like 25 minutes left in the movie so you're like there's a capable pilot with like millions of hours of flight time in the cockpit of an undamaged plane except for this broken window in the cockpit and it's like there's literally no tension at all and they keep trying to like add things at the last second like well what if the landing gear isn't coming down or they don't know if it's down because they don't have an indicator it's like who cares i see people land planes without landing gear out all the time it's like it's not impressive the hudson sully yeah It's it's just the whole the whole end of the movie is flubbed because at the last second they're like they threw way too much savior into it and yeah. now it's like well now there's literally no risk of anything bad happening. And then it lands and it's and it's it's touched down with functional landing gear and a fully functional plane and they're like oh but the brake lines are out and it's like who fucking cares you're in a plane you landed in the desert. You could just keep driving off the runway. It's fine. Nothing's going to happen. This plane isn't going to explode now. It's it's just weird the way they chose to end that movie, but it's dumb, and uh, the fourth one is just weird. But this one is great. I liked it the whole way through. The pacing is wonderful. You have all these believable steps where things are getting worse and things are getting more complicated. Um, yeah, and it's really fun. I was gonna say it, it's it makes more to me. It made more sense from a budgetary standpoint. Yeah, because it's essentially one one. It's one big set. Yeah, but it's one set. Yeah, you know, like we 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 do a lot of like stuff where we're in like on ships or like that scene where George Kennedy and, and Jimmy Stewart are in an airplane hangar. And yeah. It's, it's, it's a cool shot and it's like this huge wide shot of all these different planes in, in storage, but, but it like, costs nothing. Yeah. You, you can get exactly. it all in a day. Like, like I'm sure that w- that shot was because, Oh, the Navy's cooperating with us. Where can we shoot? Do you yeah. want to shoot in this airplane hangar? Yes, we do. Yeah. We uh, just took the airplane out so that you can shoot stuff with the airplane. Yeah. Why don't you use its hangar? Uh, so I feel like, from a budget standpoint, like, yeah, this, this, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I really like the cast of the second one though. Uh, like, yeah. Cause you got Charlton Heston, you got Karen Black. Yeah. You got Le- Helen Linda Reddy. Blair? Yeah. Linda Blair, Helen Th- Reddy. That was the part where I realized that even specifically, uh, airport 1975 has a lot of references in airplane because obviously Linda Blair is playing the girl who is, needs a transplant. Right. And they're playing like guitar for her. Um, but also we have the same scene where the person picks up the red phone in the airport and has a conversation with a doctor sitting behind a desk about this Mm -hmm. girl needing a transplant and how important it is that she get where she's going as quick as possible. And then he hangs up and switches to the white phone to talk to somebody else about something else. And it's like, wow, like the framing, it's on the same side of the screen. Mm -hmm. Like all this is directly in airplane. Um, and obviously the flight attendant being asked to land the plane is in airplane, I give it a thumbs up. Yeah, thumbs up, definitely. Yeah, it's it's very enjoyable. I, I feel like I had maybe seen snippets of this movie before because when we were running them down in our head, like I, I was saying like, like I'm not familiar with the first one, but I know Karen Black's in the second one. I know one of them is underwater and one of them is a Concord. Yeah. Like, that's literally all I know of the franchise. Yeah, and the, the, the other thing that's weird about the last film um, because it's split up into two flights is that there are some passengers who are not on the second leg. 
I wouldn't be. Yeah, but there's <laughs> like, but there's also some passengers that are only on the second leg. So like Charo suddenly shows up in the second half of the movie because she's getting on the second flight. Yeah, but also yeah, if I if I heard like oh yeah this plane's gonna be shot at it was just yeah. shot at it's gonna be shot at some more. It's like I'm not getting on this but plane. The one thing that's really fucking cool is George Kennedy flying a Concorde jet and jets are shooting at them with missiles and he's swerving this Concorde jet around trying to avoid missiles in the air and tricking them into crashing into the ocean and shit. Like he's doing all these evasive maneuvers in a Concorde and it's pretty amazing actually. Like that stuff is really fun. But uh, but the plot is dumb and uh, and I don't I never once cared about this whole eyewitness situation. It's just like, think of some other reason that they'd be shooting at this plane because this isn't interesting. Maybe it's a war. Maybe it's a country that's trying to start a war, but uh, because the terrorists have access to like fighter jets and stuff, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But uh, yeah, that's the airport franchise <laughs> and more specifically Airport 77. Um, three thumbs up, really wonderful. Our director here was Jerry Jameson. He has mostly TV directing credits and editing credits before this. After this, we'll see him work directing another movie where balloons are used to lift a craft from the ocean floor. Any guesses? Raise the Titanic. Uh, Same director. Oh, I thought you meant aside from nope, the one we already nope. mentioned. Same one. He directed that movie. He's also an uncredited director on 1986's Heat, not to be confused with Michael Mann's 1995 Heat. The novel was from Arthur Haley. In addition to writing the novel that kicked off this whole franchise, he also wrote the screenplay for Zero Hour. So I'm going to call 1980's Airplane a straight-up Arthur Haley parody. He also wrote a novel called Hotel, which was adapted into a long-running 80s series and TV movie. Called what? Hotel. <laughs> Which I'm sure that same book reviewer hated. He's like, oh, fucking hotel. Great. Can't wait to read Hotel from the author of Airport. <laughs> Writer Michael Sheff. This was his only feature film writing credit, mostly 80s and 90s television after this. He has a writing credit on a 1974 TV movie called Skyway to Death, where they literally get caught on the, the tram at the airport. Um, and he wrote that with his co-writer from this film, David Spector, who has no other credits beyond this and Skyway to Death. The story was from H.A.L. Craig, who also wrote The Message and Lion of the Desert for Halloween producer Mustafa Akkad. The other story credit goes to Charles Kunstel, mostly acting credits, including episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel, Twilight Zone, and Gunsmoke. The music here was from John Kakavas. He previously scored Airport 1975. We've heard his work so far in James L. Conway's Hangar 18. Cinematographer Philip H. Lathrop. Before this, he DP'd Finian's Rainbow, They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, The Traveling Executioner, and Rabbit Run on his way to Disaster Films Airport 1975 and Earthquake. After this, he lights The Driver and returns to this franchise for the Concorde Airport 79. We've seen his work so far in Little Miss Marker, Loving Couples, Foolin' Around, A Change of Seasons, and All Night Long. Editor Robert Watts has mostly TV editing credits. His only other feature is 1973's S about a scientist who develops a serum to turn people into snakes. The other editing credit goes to J. Terry Williams, who previously cut The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, Hornet's Nest, and Airport 75. He reunites with director Jameson to cut Raise the Titanic and TV movie Goliath Awaits. Nice. When Jesse and I were talking about what this movie reminded us of, she said Poseidon Adventure and Titanic. And I said, raise the Titanic and Goliath awaits. And it turns out all three of those things are edited by the same guy. <laughs> Goliath awaits this and raise the Titanic. But also all three of these films this guy edited deal with recovering sunken crafts with mo most of them have survivors on board. 
Jack Lemmon played Don Gallagher. He actually trained in both diving and flight schools to prepare for this role, but ultimately admitted that agreeing to this film was a mistake. Aww. He was does it? not like it. He thought his career was dwindling down and instructed his agent to pass along whatever paid the most at the time. And that was this. I disagree. You did fine. Yeah. And I haven't seen him do this kind of like action-y stuff before. So that was neat. He plays C.C. Baxter in The Apartment. He's Felix Unger in the Odd Couple movies. He's Jerry slash Daphne in Some Like It Hot. He's also in Glengarry Glen Ross and Grumpier Old Men. He has Best Actor and Supporting Actor Oscars for Save the Tiger and Mr. Roberts, respectively. Never heard of either of those. Oh, Mr. Roberts is, is great. Good stuff. Henry Fonda and Jack Lemmon. And oh, okay, cool. Uh, James Cagney. We last saw him last season in our Patreon review of the original Out of Towners and as the lead in Tribute. Lee Grant played Karen Wallace. She was the aunt of the devil in Omen 2. She's Anne McGregor in The Swarm and Mrs. Colbert or Colbert in In the Heat of the Night. She's also Louise Bonner in Mulholland Drive. She won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her role of Felicia in Shampoo. In 1971, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress in The Landlord and lost to Helen Hayes for her part in the first airport film. Also nominated that year were Hayes' airport co-star Maureen Stapleton and future airport 1975 star Karen Black. We saw her last year as the judge at the end of Little Miss Marker and earlier this season as Mrs. Lupowitz in Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. IMDb trivia for this film included this amusing tidbit. In the movie, Lee Grant's character is married to Christopher Lee's character. If they were to get married in real life, her name would have been Lee Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Brenda Vaccaro played Eve Clayton. She was Shirley in Midnight Cowboy, Kay Brubaker in Capricorn One, and Bianca in Supergirl. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her role in 1975's Once Is Not Enough, and we saw her as Monica Gilbert in The First Deadly Sin and Florinda in Zora the Gay Blade. She also provides the voice of Ardith, Jay Sherman's ex-wife, on The Critic. Joseph Cotton played Nicholas St. Downs III. He's in The Third Man, and he is the third man in this movie because he's a third. He was Brian Cameron in Gaslight. Jedediah Leland and Citizen Kane, William Simonson and Soylent Green. We've seen him so far in The Hearse and Heaven's Gate and a minisode review of Guiana Cult of the Damned. I was very confused when I noticed that he played Meland in Concord Affair 79. And this is usually where I'd say not to be confused with The Concord Airport 79. But this is one of those Italian soft sequels and it was clearly intended to be confused for The Concord Airport 79 concord affair 79 it's called now i want to see it but he's there's like three american actors and everybody else is a bunch of italian people (laughs) so i feel like the audiences were like wait this is not like a star-studded affair like i thought olivia de Havilland played emily livingston she has acting credits back to the mid-30s including captain blood the adventures of robin hood where she played maid marion and gone with the wind she has Oscars for lead actress in To Each His Own and The Heiress. She had previously appeared alongside Joseph Cotton in both The Screaming Woman and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, as well as an episode of The Love Boat in 1981 that featured them both. Joan Crawford has said that she was offered the part and tried to replace Joseph Cotton with Joel McRae as her love interest, but when she learned that she was expected to wear her own clothing, she turned the offer down. That seems crazy to me because Edith Head was the costume designer on this film, unless she just did like the uniforms for the flight crew or something yeah uh well i mean if they specifically said you have to wear your own clothing yeah because she was like you're casting me late if you're starting production in a couple weeks and they said well we don't have to do fittings because you'll just wear your own clothes and she was like no thank you 
This is not the first time that de Havilland took a role from Crawford, nor the second. In 1962, production on Lady in a Cage was going over schedule and Crawford dropped out, making room for de Havilland to step in, and two years later in 1964, Miss Crawford fell ill and dropped out of Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and de Havilland was brought in to play the part. Before even Crawford was offered the role, producer William Fry offered it to Irene Dunn with an additional offer of a brand new Rolls Royce every year for a decade. Dunn said that she liked the script, but declined because I don't like Rolls Royces. What? <laughs> you can sell them. Yeah. De Havilland is also the name of an aircraft company famous for the first passenger jet, the Comet, and the company's founder is actually Olivia's cousin, Jeffrey De Havilland. Darren McGavin played Stan Buchek. He's Billy Madison's dad. He's the dad from Christmas Story. He's Harry Shannon in Raw Deal, and he's uncredited as Gus Sands from The Natural. We saw him last season as Harry Forbes in Hangar 18. Christopher Lee played Martin Wallace. He took the part to work with Jack Lemmon and was later offered the role of Dr. Rumack in Airplane, which eventually went to Leslie Nielsen. That would have been such a dramatically different part. Yeah, I think Leslie Nielsen was the right choice there. I'm just thinking about the alternate timeline where Christopher Lee plays this slapsticky character and then that's what he becomes known for. Oh no, he that does, would actually be really sad. He does like the Naked Gun, it's Christopher Lee in the Naked Gun movies. I don't I don't like that at all cuz then you've got <laughs> Christopher Lee in like 2001 a Space Travesty and it's like ugh, no. We saw him last in An Eye for an Eye and before that in our Patreon review of Scars of Dracula. Last season, he was Luckman Skull, the leader of the gay biker gang in Serial. He's also Saruman and Count Dooku. He's the man with the golden gun and perhaps his most dastardly villain, Sender, and John Landis' The Stupids. Robert Foxworth with Chambers, the evil co-pilot. He's in The Omen 2 and Prophecy. We've seen him so far in our mini-sode review of The Black Marble, where he plays the lead. He appeared as Chase Gioberti in 155 episodes of Falcon Crest. Lately, he has found regular work in voice acting. After providing the voice of Race Bannon on The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest in the mid to late 90s and Ratchet in Transformers 2, 3, and 4. Robert Hooks played Eddie. He was Admiral Morrow in The Search for Spock and Joe Temple in a couple Seinfelds. Monty Markham played Banker. That's the disguised pilot. He was Captain Don Thorpe on Baywatch. Kathleen Quinlan played Julie. She was Wendy in Lifeguard before this. Helen Foley in Twilight Zone the movie. Patricia Keneally in The Doors movie. Marilyn Lovell in Apollo 13, I think the wife of Tom Hanks, yeah. for which she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She's also in My Giant and on Chicago Fire. Gil Gerard played Frank Powers. He was Buck Rogers in the 1979 feature film. He's also Bergen Paulson in The Nice Guys. James Booth played Ralph Crawford. He was John Baker in Cabo Blanco, Paul Rossini in The Jazz Singer, and Velasquez in Zorro the Gay Blade. Or Velasquez. I forget how they pronounce it in the movie. Monica Lewis played Anne. I think that's the other flight attendant. She played Beverly in Charlie Varick, Barbara in Earthquake, Tourist Mother in Roller Coaster. She returns to the airport series as a different character, nightclub singer Gretchen in the Concord Airport 79. So she is not who I thought. Never mind. Anne is not the other flight attendant. She and co-star Christopher Lee were born in the same month, May of 1922, and died in the same month, June of 2015. Mady Norman played Dorothy. She was Elvira Stitt in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. She's also Nurse Agnes in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Pamela Bellwood played Lisa. She was Carol in Serial, Sarah in Hangar 18, Sandra Dyson in The Incredible Shrinking Woman, and Peggy Ramsey in Two Minute Warning. Arlene Galanka played Mrs. Jane Stern. She was Sally Cooper in The Last Married Couple in America. 
Tom Sullivan played Steve. He's an actual blind singer. He was born prematurely and required an oxygen feed to survive, but was apparently given too much oxygen, causing lifelong blindness. He sang the national anthem at Super Bowl X and the 1976 Indianapolis 500. Next season of the podcast, we'll see a film based on his college years entitled If You Could See What I Hear. M. Emmett Walsh played Dr. Williams. He was Detective Lauren Visser in Blood Simple, Dr. Dolan in Fletch, Bryant in Blade Runner, and he was just in Knives Out a couple years back. Last season, we saw him in Brubaker, Raise the Titanic, and Ordinary People, and this season we've seen him in Backroads, Cold Turkey, and he's back later for Reds. He and Airport 77 co-star Darren McGavin actually play brothers with the same name, Arthur Dales, in separate X-Files episodes. Darren McGavin and M. Emmett Walsh play brothers, both named Arthur Dales. God, I'm trying to remember that episode. It's two episodes. They don't, they're not in the same episode. Oh. Yeah. Michael Richardson played Walker. He was Sandy in Earthquake and Lieutenant Wall in Midway. Michael Pataki played Wilson. That's probably the other terrorist because I have no idea who Wilson is. Uh, he played Amenophis Tufik in a couple episodes of the Adam West Batman. He's mime number four in Easy Rider, Dennis in The Baby, and he shows up in previous Jerry Jameson film, The Bat People. He was Monk in Raise the Titanic and Guglioni in Graduation Day, and he's back later this season for Dead and Buried. Later he appears in Sweet 16, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, and Rocky IV. He's Carnus in Star Trek TNG episode Too Short a Season. He also has some voice credits, including Cow on The Ren and Stimpy Show. George Firth played Gerald Lucas. He was Woodcock in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Charlie Flager Jr. in Myra Breckenridge. We had him earlier this season as A.F. Foyt, fellow lover of trees in Cannonball Run, and he's Van Johnson in Blazing Saddles. Yeah, that, that's the thing that I recognized him from yeah. immediately. I was like, I know this guy. Oh, he's also Timon in The Man with Two Brains. Richard Venture played Commander Paul Gway. He was Franklin in Series 7, The Contenders. Have you ever seen that? It's, it's like a reality show feature film about these people who are it's like a battle royale type thing but there's mm. seven contestants that have to kill each other and the, the lead actress is the girl that was in the pit in uh, silence of the lambs okay uh, but it's good ross bickle played johnson this was his first film he was colonel braggart in major pain and australian jackie mason on 30 rock he's also credited as mike toma in the fighter peter fox played lieutenant tommy norris we saw him last season as the dauber do you guys remember what we saw the dauber in i don't it was a name for a shitty ex-boyfriend of a girl, the Dauber. They stranded him in the middle of a baseball field naked as a prank. Three girls who talk about this prank while they go camping together in the woods. Oh, uh, Mother's Day? Mother's Day is correct. He's also Dr. Wilson in Night of the Comet. Beverly Gill played stewardess number three. She's one of the furniture girls in Soylent Green, and she's Maggie in Blackula sequel, Scream, Blackula, Scream. Charles McCauley played Admiral Corrigan. He was Dracula in Blackula. He's Hirsch in Hindenburg. He's a general in The Big Red One and another general in Raise the Titanic. And he plays the president in Splash. I don't remember that story involving the president. Tom Roski played Hunter. He was a private detective in the original Thomas Crown Affair and Rocco Lampone in The Godfather Part Two. Arthur Adams played Commander Reed. He was a police sergeant in Midnight Madness and Leipzig manager in Last Flight of Noah's Ark. He's also Mr. Jenks in Coming to America. Anthony Battaglia played Benji. He's Stokely in Serial. Elizabeth Cheshire played Bonnie Stern. That's the little girl. And she played Darcy Dumar in Melvin and Howard, the daughter of Melvin Dumar. Paul Twerp 
played Officer of the Deck. He played a newlywed in Airport 75, and we also saw him as Clink in Raise the Titanic and John in Inside Moves. Dar Robinson played Larry. He was a miner in Paint Your Wagon, an ATAC man in Nighthawks, and he's Rolf in Cyclone. Ted Chapman played the chef in the galley. He was a policeman in Bananas. We've seen him so far as Man in Bar in Don't Answer the Phone and as an airport steward in Airplane. M. James Arnett played Passenger. He's a truck driver in Foul Play. We saw him last season as Jim in When Time Ran Out, and he's back later this season as Parent in Taps. His last film credit is as Radio Man in The Blob, a Frank Darabont-produced blob. Chuck Hayward played Passenger. He appears as Judd in current Patreon option Night of the Lepus. He shows up later in Parts the Clonus Horror and in The Swarm alongside Airport 77 co-stars Olivia de Havilland and Lee Grant. We've seen him as Earl Proctor in Tom Horn and Wald from the Cavendish Gang in The Legend of the Lone Ranger. George Whiteman played Passenger. He was Beck in Raise the Titanic from the same director. Gene Coulter played Passenger. Ski Boat Driver from Jaws 2 from a couple Patreon picks back. Chris Lemon was the radio man. This was his first credit. We saw him as Robbie Rotman in Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood and as a policeman in Seems Like Old Times. He shows up later as a CHP officer in Cannonball Run 2. He reunites with George Kennedy in Just Before Dawn later this season, and as the name would suggest, he is the son of Jack Lemmon. Do you recall the last time we saw a grumpy old man acting alongside his own son? Choo Choo and the Chili Flash? No. <laughs> the Chili Flash? Choo Choo and the... Philly. Philly. That's what I said. But that's true, though. Technically, you are correct. But when I said grumpy old man, I was referring specifically to the cast of grumpy old men. Oh. But you are right. <laughs> Alan Arkin and and Adam Arkin are both in Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. But I prefer Chili Flash. <laughs> the Chili Dogs. Yeah. Any any ideas? Well, I'm assuming it's Hopscotch. It is Hopscotch, yeah. His son played one of the FBI men sent to yeah. arrest him. Yeah, because I don't think it was Little Miss Marker. No. John Clavin played FAA supervisor. Last season, he was Judge Weatherall in the competition. John Kerry, not that John Kerry, played Lieutenant Commander. <laughs> he was Detective Mitchell in Dolomite, and he was promoted to Chief in time to appear in Black Dynamite. He will soon be appearing as John Rothschild in Babylon. Jimmy Ray Weeks played a pilot. He was a TV producer in Eyewitness earlier this season and a seller in Cruising last season. He also shows up in The Manhattan Project, Frantic, Midnight Run, The Abyss, and Hot Shots. One of his most recent credits was as a prison guard in Requiem for a Dream, and he kind of looks like a skinnier, younger Bill Foggerbach. William Whitaker played Radio Man. He was an ambulance driver in Earthquake. Nancy Burnett played Radar Room Controller. She's a nurse in It's Alive, and her latest credit is 229 appearances as Beth Logan on The Bold and the Beautiful. Bill Jelliff played Johnny in Dirty Harry sequel The Enforcer, and we saw him last season as a man on the ferry in Serial, just in the background. Ricky Sorensen played Controller Number 2. He's the voice of Wart in Sword in the Stone, and after this he shows up as a technician in The Cat from Outer Space. George Kennedy played Joe Petroni. He appears in Charade, The Flight of the Phoenix, The Dirty Dozen, Cool Hand Luke, for which he took a Best Supporting Actor Oscar, and Earthquake. We've covered his work in Dirty Dingus McGee, Death Ship, and Modern Romance for the show, where he played himself on Modern Romance. He's back for Just Before Dawn later this season. Growing up, I knew him best for his comedic outings like Police Squad and the Naked Gun films. The character of Joe Petroni appears in all four airport movies and always played by Kennedy, though this installment features him the least. He's only got about 90 seconds of screen time, and he's rarely on the plane in the franchise, except in the last film where he's flying it. 
Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart, plays Philip Stevens. He's Hollywood royalty with credits dating back to the early 30s, including You Can't Take It With You, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Shop Around the Corner, The Philadelphia Story, for which he was awarded a Best Actor Oscar, Rope, The Greatest Show on Earth, The Spirit of St. Louis, Vertigo, Anatomy of a Murder, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, How the West Was Won, Fly to the Phoenix, his first aviation disaster movie with George Kennedy. He actually has five titles total with George Kennedy. He was in Shenandoah, The Flight of the Phoenix, Bandolero, Fool's Parade, and this together. I was going to say that there's another airline disaster movie that he's in, um, No Highway in the Sky. Yeah. Uh, with him and Glennis Johns. Oh, okay. Uh, it, it's, it's I like that one. I'll have to check it out. His final credit was as the voice of Sheriff Wiley Burp in An American Tale, Five Goes West. Bob Harks played a Brinks guard. He has almost exclusively uncredited roles, and I call bullshit on most of them. Looks I, like the dude was in 100 movies in 1976. I mean, is he... The guard that's on the plane? No, he's not that guard. So he must be a guard somewhere else in the movie. But he seems like a pathological liar who learned how to use IMDb. Because more than 99% of his IMDb page is uncredited. Mm. And he has like 300 credits. So I'm going to assume that only your real credited roles are, are not made up. Jack McDermott plays a reporter. He was banker in Hardly Working. He was Win in The Final Countdown. And he was the dad of the lead girl in The Fun House. We'll see him later this season as a reporter in Super Fuzz and as news staff in Absence of Malice. Frank Slayton played henchman uncredited. I don't remember another henchman. I think there was just the three. This was his first film. He's also a henchman in Johnny Dangerously, presumably one of Maroney's gang. He's Drago's bodyguard in Rocky IV, and he played an inmate in MacGyver episode A Prisoner of Conscience. Conscience. Con- 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 conscience. 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 Just a bunch of shells. <laughs> I also drink blood. <laughs> Most recently, he's credited as Super Seat Customer in Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie. We'll see him later this season as a restaurant patron in Only When I Laugh. I like that you're the only one who's going to get that reference. Yep. I also like to drink blood. I think that's everything for Airport 77. Thanks again to Louis Letizia for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with a trailer for Airport 77. Something's wrong. Flight 23 Sierra, a private 747. The luxurious plaything of one of the world's wealthiest men. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad you could join us. I've lost contact with 23 Sierra. The passengers, a collection of the rich and the beautiful. It's just not here. The cargo, a priceless fortune in art. They're in the Bermuda Triangle. And now, Flight 23 Sierra is off course and in trouble. is Airport 77. Drown in here. Nobody is going to drown. The plane is pressurized. Have you radioed for help? Radios don't work underwater, but our course has been tracked on radar, and they know exactly where we went down. What'll we do? Calm down. We run out of air for I said calm down!
an unforgettable adventure, an all-star cast, starring Jack Lemmon, Brenda Vaccaro. Chambers flew us a couple of hundred miles off course. The search planes will never look for us here. There's no chance of We're on our own. Lee Grant, Christopher Lee. We're us. We're us. They're a bunch of strangers. That's your problem. You think everybody is us. Joseph Cotton, Olivia de Havilland. <laughs> Darren McGavin. Any increase in pressure will crush this fuselage like an empty beer can. George Kennedy and James Stewart as Philip Stevens. My daughter and my grandson are on that plane. Don't get too close to the door. This is Navy Search Base. Go ahead, Navy Search 5. Have located the aircraft at coordinates given. The aircraft is completely submerged. I want this to be a first stage alert. It could be helos, scuba teams, compressors, air hose packages, the works. I want this treated exactly like an emergency sub-salvage operation. The tradition of motion picture excitement continues. Airport 77. Bigger, more exciting than Airport 75.